0: Good morning. morning. It's an awesome thought to think that he can change the world through an individual. Just awesome. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we come, Father, to ask you to Make your presence known in a very real way this morning. As we think about your word and uh, and our own individual response to it, Lord, uh, open up our minds and our hearts and help us, Father, to uh, say yes to you. Father, bless this congregation and uh, may it continue to be a lighthouse here in this area. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The topic I'd like to address this morning uh, is thinking Christianly. And what got me to thinking about this subject for today is the discussion that's going around in our country about values and about ethics, about secularism, about the coarseness that seems to have invaded all sectors of society today. And this discussion has been added to uh, with the display that was part of the halftime show in the Super Bowl. What should be done to CBS is an issue that the chairman of the FCC is struggling with. And he has ordered an investigation into what he described as A classless, crass, and deplorable stunt. What is right and what is wrong? And is there a way a person ought to think? Are there any guidelines? Chairman Michael Powell of the FCC said he received more than 200,000 emails two days after the Super Bowl. As I further thought on the subject of ethics and morality, I recall several years ago while I was on the faculty of the uh, Calvary City Bible School that we had begun a lecture series for the Christian community entitled the Anthony Norris Groves Lecture Series. Anthony Norris Groves was one of the great men, uh, one of my heroes. The year that jumped out to me during these lecture series, was the year when we had as our speaker Dr. William McCrae, the president of a seminary in Toronto, Canada. He was formerly a regular speaker at Believer's Bible Chapel in Dallas, Texas. Mr. McRae introduced his subject by presenting four large areas of need in the church. And his particular style of preaching was to... Uh, give each point of his sermon the letter P. He spoke of the number one problem in the church. He spoke of the number one priority in the church. He spoke of the number one program in the church. And lastly, he spoke of the number one peril in the church. Four P's. So, what was the number one peril in the church? Dr. McCray said the number one peril in the church was in the area of a man's thinking. And the stereotype of a Christian in some circles, in some circles, is that a Christian's mind is at best in neutral and at worst in reverse. A Christian's mind, they say, is naive and very gullible. A Christian is simply out of date and therefore irrelevant. Now, that is not the picture of a believer that the Bible gives us. And the Bible has a great deal to say about thinking on the part of believers. And the Bible challenges I believe, all Christians to think. God has made all people with the capacity to think. And Christians of all people should be thinking people. And this morning I'd like for us to look at four scriptures and see what the Bible has to say about thinking. And even more importantly... That kind of thinking which characterizes a Christian. Turn first of all for our first reading in Romans chapter 1 and verse 21. The scriptures I'll be reading are from the New International Version. Romans chapter 1 verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their thinking became futile. And the word thinking in this text is the Greek word dialogizomai. That's a nice word, isn't it? It's from the Greek word from which we get our English word dialogue. And the passage is saying that a person in sight of truth that is set before him leaves out God, ignores God, or refuses God in his internal dialogue. And by internal dialogue, I mean those little talks that we have with ourselves. I see people all the time having an internal dialogue when I'm driving. And sometimes I look over and I see there, there's nobody else in the car but them, but they're having a little internal dialogue and they're voicing it out loud and they feel they can do that because they're all alone. You know, everyone talks to themselves. And it doesn't mean that we're missing a few uh, shingles, you know. <laughs> the conversation this person has in our text Is that he refuses the evidence and chooses to ignore God. You know, this person may say something like this as he thinks within himself. Say, yeah, I know there's a lot of evidence about God, but, but people will think I'm crazy if I think the way they assume I'm thinking. And I begin to act as if there was really a God. I will think I'm nuts. This person goes on to say that the person who engages in this kind of thinking arrives only at a dead end, futility, and has its foolish heart darkened. The text calls this kind of thinking foolish because it is the fool who says in his heart, no God. The mind of a person is never a religious vacuum. If there's an absence of the truth, that means that there will be a presence of the false. Because we do not have a vacuum up here. The text describes this as foolish darkness. Only a fool would ignore the evidence for God and the result is declension it's a downhill slide morally and after that futility or vanity or emptiness and then lastly darkness last Sunday afternoon around 3 o'clock a group of us uh, went to the uh, Rossmore Care Center uh, to sing to sing to the uh, patients there. And after we had sung and, uh, several songs, we took a break. And the idea was that we would then go and introduce ourselves to the patients. And I recall I went to a husband and wife and uh, my first question to them was, uh, were they believers in Jesus Christ? And the, uh, the woman said, yes. And the man said, no. And so I said to him, well, what do you believe in? He said, I believe in rationalism. I said, well, that's interesting. I said, you, sup- I suppose you believe that you're going to get to heaven through your rationalization. He said, I mean reason. Reason. His foolish mind had been darkened. And I told him, I said, I'm so glad that there are a number of reasonable people who have read the Bible, who have considered the truth of the Scriptures and have found that it was that which satisfied their soul. And he gave me a rather wry smile and ended the conversation. Does the passage that we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 teach us how to think Christianly? I think it does. First, it tells us that we should not refuse the evidence. Don't refuse the evidence. And our whole universe is calling out about God. It's telling us about God. It tells us about His existence. It tells us about His wisdom. It tells us... That only a, a God, a God could, could put it together the way He put it together. It tells us to act upon the fact that we know there is a God. And I hope you noticed the reading carefully when we read it before. And if you didn't, I want to read it again. Verse 21. For although they knew God. Did you get that? Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. I don't believe there are any true atheists. They know there is a God. One cannot remain neutral about God. And knowing about God calls for a response. And the one who is thinking Christianly does respond to God. People knew about God, but they refused to do two things. First of all, they refused to glorify God. This means that they refused to worship God. This means that they refused to speak well of God. It means that they refuse to acknowledge the priority of God in all of life. And the second thing is they failed to give thanks. This means that they refuse to say thank you, O God, for all of your good gifts. They refuse to say thank you, O God, for life and health and food and, and your care and all of those Wonderful extras that you throw in. This means they refuse to say thank you. Just thank you. Thinking Christianly means I will glorify God and that I will say thank you. Why do we have the Lord's Supper every Sunday? We do it to remember our Lord and to glorify Him and to say thank you. That's why. A second scripture I'd like for us to consider is Isaiah chapter 44. This is a dynamite scripture. If you don't have this one underlined, I want you to consider it this morning. Isaiah chapter 44. 44. And just for sake of time, I just want to read two verses. The entire passage that I would would normally read would be verses 14 through 20. But let's just read verses 19 and 20. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say half of this block of wood. I'm going to add that there because that's the text. Half of this block of wood I use for fuel. I even break bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. And then shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him and he cannot save himself or say, is this thing in my right hand a lie? Well, the man never stops to figure it out, to think or figure it out. Literally, verse 19 reads, there is none who returns his heart. There is none that returns to his heart. This means that no one is returning to a sound way of thinking. No one is listening to what one knows deep inside of himself that there is a God. no one is thinking deep inside himself what is the truth. And the idea here is that deep down inside every person in this room and every person I believe in this universe knows what is right. But here, the person doesn't take time to think or to be honest with himself. The idolaters of whom Isaiah wrote were not mentally deficient or mentally incapacitated. They simply didn't make use of the ability that God gave them to think with regard to what was right. And it's absolutely amazing that very intelligent people will accept a lie. Can you imagine very intelligent people taking this block of wood, cooking their food... And then taking the balance of that and making a God and then bowing down before it and saying, that's a God. It's crazy. People somehow fail to ask the critical, the most important questions that to some may seem obvious. There was a man who lived some time ago now. Uh, His name is Edward R. Murrow. He was a newscaster. Maybe some of you still remember him. He said, the obscure we see eventually. The completely obvious takes a little longer. (laughs) And I think that's somewhat true. Return to your heart for a moment and ask yourself some questions. Here's a question I like to pose: Doesn't it seem that there is something wrong with the sexual revolution? Doesn't it seem there's something wrong going on there? Has it liberated people from their hangups? Is what they call hangups? Have people truly been set free? From centuries of depressed and repressed sexual feelings. And we all know the answer, and the answer is no. People have not been set free. They actually are worse off. Well, thankfully, thankfully, some people are listening to their hearts. And a former pusher of sexual revolution, George Leonard, has written a book entitled The End of Sex. And uh, I want you to listen to what he says in one sentence. The sexual revolution has failed to enhance the value of sex. Instead, it has cheapened the value of love. Another question. Doesn't it seem that there is something terribly wrong, something terribly amiss with what is called the alternative lifestyle? And the term alternative lifestyle is the usual code name for homosexuality. Has alternative lifestyles brought happiness to society? Has it brought fulfillment? Has it brought peace? Has it brought joy? I don't think so. I don't think so. Another question. Doesn't it seem that there is something morally wrong when it is okay to terminate a life even during the last month of pregnancy? Is society better off because of this practice? Are we better human beings that demonstrate our compassion, our great compassion by this practice? Another question. Doesn't it seem that there is something gone haywire when it's okay to bring the occult in our schools and at the same time ban the mildest Christian expression? A number of years ago, a few Christians took to the streets in Culver City, where we lived, protesting the regular teaching of the occult in high school. This group made the front page of the Los Angeles Times and it made my heart feel good to see Kathleen on that front page of the Los Angeles Times uh, with her banner protesting the occult teaching at Culver City High School where some of our kids were at the time. When you return to your heart, what does it say? And these kinds of questions, and there are a lot of questions, and I hope you question. Question the thinking of our society. And this is a good time to do it because I think there's a huge culture war that is going on right now. We need to ask questions. No one stops to think. No one. To think Christianly means I will stop and think about what is going on in my world and I will ask myself questions. Because I have not been left without the means to make a moral judgment, I will ask myself, can I? That is, what is before me, stand the test of the standard of the Word of God. And that test is what I need to do. It's tested according to the standard of the Word of God. A third scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 20. I'll go over this one quickly. It says there, brothers, and I'll add sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Because Paul is speaking to Christians here, he is saying that some Christians appear to think as children and some think as adults. And what does he mean? Obviously, there is an emphasis here on maturity, on growth, on development. A child's mind is relatively undeveloped. It is relatively untrained. And the child's mind does not, in this passage, distinguish what is the proper manner for the gifts that are mentioned here and how they should function. It simply doesn't know. And so Paul says, stop being children in your thinking. And it seems fair to say that adult thinking should have corrected some of the problems in the Christian church, in the Corinthian church. And the reason we speak of elders in the church is because the term elders signifies maturity. And, of course, the presumption is that mature thinking and mature actions actually go together. And I trust that's true. Throughout the New Testament, Christians are exhorted to grow, to develop, to go on to maturity, to be able to think as adults. To think Christianly as a mature Christian is to be able to resist to think through, to think biblically with respect to, to bad teaching, uh, trickiness and craftiness and deceit, etc. One of the great joys of the church is to teach the Bible to Christians so they will grow and develop in their faith. The last scripture I want to focus on is matthew twenty two verse forty two. And it says there, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about Christ? When I was about 13 or 14 years of age, my parents had just come to know the Lord. I still did not know Him. But a dear man from Flint, Michigan, gave my folks a text, done nicely, small frame text. And the frame text had this scripture on it. I think it was the King James Version, then, what think ye of Christ? What think ye of Christ? And having been given this uh, text, uh, they um, then looked about the ho- house. Where, where were they going to hang it? <laughs> and they hung it in my bedroom. There was a little message there, wasn't there? Uh, I confess I hadn't done a whole lot of thinking about Christ. Thinking about Christ is to be engaged in on Sunday morning. For an hour, right? So there the text hung. Sometimes I saw it. Most often I ignored it and pretended it wasn't even there. Sometimes I became angry at the text and I resented my parents for having placed such a text in my room. Why didn't they put it in their room? You know. Why did I need this reminder in my room? I went to church, to the church in which I was baptized. I went to the same church in which I had my first communion and in which I was confirmed. I would go to church every Sunday. I hardly ever missed. Wasn't I a good boy? Uh, At some point, I discovered that I wasn't really thinking about church, even though I went to church quite often. Sometimes I was thinking about the church building and the pew in which I sat with my friends and the great conversation we would have uh, during the service. I was thinking about the priest who seemed to be a nice guy. I thought about the catechism sometimes, not often, which I had memorized both the questions and the answers. So, if someone asked me, what was number 76? I could give them the question and the answer. I thought about the baseball game we kids would play after lunch. But what did I think of Christ? What do you think of Christ? What do you think of Christ? Who is He? Why was He born in this world? Eventually, I learned to think this way about Him. Eventually, I began to think of Him as my Savior. My Reconciler. My Peace Giver. My intercessor. My great high priest. My justification. My friend. My Lord. The one who sticks closer to me than a brother. And on and on. What think ye of Christ? Thinking. Some people have stopped thinking it seems. But I'd like you to think this morning of Christ. Will you acknowledge this morning that Christ is the one who died on the cross for you? Will you acknowledge that? Will you acknowledge Christ as Lord as Master, that He has the final say over everything? Do you believe that it was through Him that the worlds were made? What do you think of Christ? Will you acknowledge Christ as the only Son who is at the Father's Side. Will you acknowledge Him as God? What do you think of Christ? Do you think so much of Him that uh, if I were to ask you, would you put your trust in Him? Would you, would you raise your hand? If I were to ask you that, what do you think? It always comes down to this kind of issue. What I think of Christ will matter forever. Whether I say yes to Christ or whether I say no to Christ, it was a question that will matter forever. Forever. It'll matter 50 years from now a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, ten thousand years from now, and, and make the number as big as you wish, it'll still matter. Let's pray. Father, we come to You in Jesus' name. And we thank You that You came into this world and demonstrated who you were. You perform miracle upon miracle who you were. And you asked people, which of you convinceth me of sin? And none could say, that he had sinned. And Father, we thank You that this One who knew no sin became sin for us and that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And so, Father, we pray and give thanks for this One. And we pray, Father, for each person here today. We pray that each one here will have thought of Christ. And how they relate to Him and how He relates to them. And so, Father, we, we pray this morning for each person here. And while every head is bowed, I'd just like to ask again, is there someone here who would like to raise their hand and say, yes, I have thought of Christ, I think of Him, and I would like for Him to be my Savior? Would you raise your hand? And if not now, perhaps later today. So, Lord, we again commit ourselves to you freshly and say thank you for thinking of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.